From KCRW, this is Greater L.A. It's the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Hey there, I'm Steve Chiatakis. They are talented and seemingly lovable. Dolphins can jump high out of the water and glide through the sea like a hot knife through butter. And for decades, they've been an integral part of military service, as described on the military cable channel. Their extraordinary correct, and diving ability make these animals uniquely qualified to identify underwater mines, locate enemy swimmers, and recover Navy assets. Now, it's a program that began in the late 1950s, and the dolphins have been so successful in their aquatic missions that when the Navy moved to phase out the program last year, Congress said, nope, not yet. But those dolphins first enlisted so many years ago have gotten old, and now they've become useful for something else, research into aging. Dr. Forrest Gomez is Director of Conservation Medicine at the National Marine Mammal Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Gomez. Hi, no problem. Happy to be here. And Gidget Fuentes is a freelance reporter in San Diego who wrote about this program. Gidget, welcome to you. Thank you very much for having me. As I mentioned, Gidget, this program's been going on for a long while, and I mentioned Congress. Congress, you know, said, no, you can't phase this out. What was what was going on? What What did it do? Yes, the Navy had in recent years been looking at um, you know, at some point downsizing and, and moving away from the program. I've seen references to it for well, probably almost 20 years. Things slowed down, obviously, with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as the dolphins were deployed a few times to the region. Um, so they've been looking at doing that for a number of years. We've seen officials sort of refer to it at times as the new technology comes on the market. But we're kind of at the point where it's, can they exceed what the marine mammals provide? And from what I'm hearing, um, the answer is no. And the question is, can they, will they, and when? And if so, what would be the replacement? So that's sort of the conversations that's been going on. And in terms of cutting and reducing money in the budget, the Marine Mammal Program, I've been told by some people familiar with it, you know, can be that low-hanging fruit that easily can be, uh, you know, cut from the budget to save some money, but at what cost? At what cost, exactly. So tell us a little bit more about how how this program, this Navy program, has worked and what, what folks have told you about the abilities of the dolphins and the sea lions. The officials uh, of the program, they, they talk often about the natural abilities of the dolphins and what they can pr- provide the Navy. Um, trying to get more of the details of what exactly that is uh, can be difficult because of some of the hmm. classifications of the work that they do. They have been deployed at times um, into combat zones. Uh, we think back to uh, Desert Storm, 1990, 1991, when Navy ships were um, threatened by sea mines in the Persian Gulf, and there were a couple of uh, damaging incidents on Navy ships. Uh, you know, I think that sort of heightened the attention to what can these mammals provide, you know, short of putting a human swimmer in the water. And of course, if we jump to today, you know, that question goes now to what can technology provide to take care of that mission. Dr. Gomez, these, these dolphins have lived longer in captivity than they would have if they were in the wild um, by, by a few decades, it even seems, right? Like you've got one who's 57, is that right? Yep, Blue is, Blue is a fan favorite. She's uh, 
uh, very long lived and in in excellent health. She's what we refer to as having a very thin health file, which is what we all want. I mean, it's not it's not come without controversy. I mean, there are people who say these these mammals, these creatures should should be in the wild. They shouldn't be in captivity. And the fact that they are in captivity, they're living longer. And I, I wonder what kind of things you're seeing with these older dolphins. Yeah, the older dolphins, um, they are living longer and potentially that provides more time for um, different diseases and things to show themselves. But it, you know, if you're providing that well-rounded care, which the Navy is doing, um, these animals live in open ocean pens. They go out into the open ocean and, and swim on a, a very consistent basis. Um, they have, you know, a very complex social network. And so I do think that um, although we're seeing things as they age, we're also seeing um, really excellent care and wellness late into life. Are there similarities, doctor, like between how dolphins age and how humans age? And what kind of research can you glean from that? Yeah, there are similarities for sure. You know, we're different species. There's no question. Um, the Navy's population of animals is really unique because um, they have this longi longitudinal data set for the length of their life, right? That is almost impossible to get with a human being. I'm not going and getting blood work once a month for the, the entirety of my life, whereas the Navy's dolphins that data exists. And so it really is this incredible data set that human, like cutting edge aging experts and researchers are very interested in that data set because it can tell so much. Um, one area that we're looking into in particular right now is epigenetics. My colleague, Dr. Ashley Barrett, uh, Barrett Clough, um, she, a veterinarian as well, she has uh, been working on establishing the aging clock as has been done in humans with the clock foundation up in, in Los Angeles actually. And that would only be possible with this unique longitudinal data set that's available um, with known aged animals at the US Navy. And then um, our plan is to, we're currently applying that to wild dolphin population. So the Navy's population not only helps human health uh, and that One Health uh, perspective, but we're also translating everything that we learn from this wonderful population to help better conserve dolphins that live in the wild. You you can't just, doctor, you can't just release animals into the wild, though, that have been bred or held in captivity for a long time, right? They, they often don't survive. Um, that's a controversial topic that is not my area of expertise, but that, that has happened, what you're referring to before, yes. Let, let's talk about Gidget, if you want to come back in and talk a little bit about that controversy, the fact that I mentioned this earlier, that it hasn't come without controversy, the fact that there are folks who believe that these animals should be in the wild. Um, the Navy program was started, at least ethically speaking, and in terms of animal welfare on some questionable grounds, some saying the time has come to end it. What are your thoughts and what have you learned from, from, from talking about that? It's a good question because, like um, the doctor mentioned, there, there are controversies. There are some who believe that you can just sort of release them, others who believe that you can't. And I think there's sort of a middle ground there of some who think, well, maybe we could phase them into, you know, learning uh, more of that wild environment um, that they may eventually go to. Um, and it's a good question because I don't know if there's a clear answer on that. It may depend on the marine mammal itself, their health, their age, um, and 
how their life was in terms of interacting with humans. The interesting thing is that because the training that the marine mammals do with the Navy involves a lot of that human-mammal interaction, there's a question as to, uh, you know, have you sort of trained them to always sort of depend on the human for food, which is the big incentive for having them do tasks. And as much as, you know, uh, who wouldn't love the dolphins, you know, they come to you for food or they come to you to play, um, you know, they probably have a mission of, I'm hungry, give me a fish um, and I'll go do mm. what I need to do and enjoy it. So that's, you know, if you train them to do that, can you, how do you undo that instinct to go to the human for food if you're going to release them back in the wild? And I think that's a big question that remains to be uh, answered. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on and talking with us about it. Gidget Fuentes, freelance reporter in San Diego who wrote about the program. Dr. Forrest Gomez, Director of Conservation Medicine over at the National Marine Mammal Foundation. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Thank Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Moving on now with Greater L.A. from KCRW, let's head to the movies. Are you tired? Mm-mm. But don't you need to sleep? No, I, I like to walk. And I like the way you walk. And Paris is a city to walk in. It's a beautiful city. Yeah, it takes more than two weeks to see it, though. Can't you stretch your time a little? No, I have to go back to school. You go to school? Mm-mm. I'll start teaching next term. You know, if I had a teacher like you when I went to school, boy, yeah, I would have learned something. <laughs> I think you've learned enough. Not in school. Those are the unmistakable voices of Sidney Poitier and Diane Carroll in the 1961 film Paris Blues. Part of a film series at the Academy Museum called Try a Little Tenderness. Its focus is on movies with depictions of love and romance between black characters. And the curator of the series is Maya Cade, who created and runs the Black Film Archive, a digital repository of black films. She's also a scholar and resident at the Library of Congress, and she joins us right now. Hi, Maya. Hi, Steve. I'm so overjoyed to be here. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, tell us a little bit more about this film series over at the Academy Museum. Well, you know, I think like many of us in the pandemic, (laughs) we're kind of just taking a look at our relationships to films. And to me, there was this point that just kept coming out to me about how tenderness and love can be a navigational tool to understand Black film history, and one that I hadn't really seen much of. So I was just overjoyed to create this series that focused on that. And by the way, love and tenderness, pretty much universal, right? Yes, exactly. And I think in a moment when, you know, so much about how Black film is discussed is limited to 
trauma, pain. I think this, you know, this exploration of tenderness is just a joyful pursuit. And not to say that trauma and pain do not exist in these films or should not exist in black film, but I just thought that this was a new offering for people to explore. I mean, there there's certainly movies and TV shows these days with romance and love between black characters, but but how do you how do you see the trajectory of that when when you're looking all the way back through the decades, you know, to the beginning of film? Mm, yeah, you know, I think the trajectory of love and tenderness, I think for black people, there's so much that is within our embrace, within a head nod, a gentle understanding, that this is really how we're able to carry on. And from Black Film's past to its present, that bridge is really just how these notes of tenderness, of gentleness, are the ways we carry on. I want to talk a little bit about a couple of the films that you chose for this series. We heard a snippet of one of them, Paris Blues, uh, with with uh, Sidney Poitier and and Diane Carroll, and you know just those those voices, you know, bring back so many memories. and And it's so interesting that film on so many levels um, came out in the early '60s. Touches on how some black jazz players moved to Europe, so they're in Paris, right, France in particular, to and and they're they're looking to be appreciated to get away from the racism. I mean, the civil rights movement, you know, was was in in full tilt in this country, right, at, at that time. How much cultural power do movies have? What kind of statement was it making for its time? Oh, you know, something that's interesting about Paris Blues in particular is that the book that it was based off actually was an interracial romance. And they make a nod to that at the very beginning of the film when um, Diane Carroll uh, and Paul Newman are in conversation on the train, and he says, all of these white girls look alike. And that is the only nod that the film has to its uh, to the its source material. But the statement of the film about these, you know, these black characters walking amongst Paris and, you know, finding, trying to find a racially tolerant place where America couldn't really offer them that, it, 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 it you know, it, it shows that love can be a sense of freedom and it can open doors while also like being loved by a place in a way that we necessarily couldn't in America. Try a little tenderness is part of a, a larger retrospective there, right? Called regeneration, black cinema, 1898 to 1971. So what else is going to be coming up as part of that exhibition, which, which goes, which goes even further, right? Yeah, so um, I, as the guest film programmer, I can speak to my films, but in Regeneration, Regeneration goes on until July. So long after the series ends, Regeneration will still be able, you'll be able to visit Regeneration, uh, the exhibition in the museum. And really, I think Regeneration is quite special in its pursuit to understand or to help people understand just how abundant black film history is. And I think that this series speaks to the ways and, and th that regeneration um, can 
or Black Film History can offer us so much. <laughs> and this series is just one avenue of exp exploring that. Well, there certainly are some great titles involved with, with Try a Little Tenderness, and the whole exhibit, I'm sure, is wonderful. Something I will check out. I hope you will as well. Maya Cade, the creator and curator of the Black Film Archive, that's on now at the Academy Museum. Maya, thanks for coming on. Good luck to you. Thank you so much. Still to come, looking for a Tiffany lamp shaped like a mushroom or maybe a commode with legs and feet that resemble stilettos, a jade head of cabbage, stuff like that, collected by the late pornographer Larry Flint or up for auction this week. More on that on the other side of this. Onward now with Greater L.A. from KCRW. I'm Steve Chiotakis. At the corner of La Cienega and Wilshire Boulevards, there's an oval glass building inscribed with the letters LFP. That's an abbreviation for Larry Flint Publications. Well, before its 2013 sale, that building was the headquarters of Flint's pornographic empire, built on the back of his hustler brand of magazines, casinos, gentlemen's clubs, retail stores, and adult films. Like his competitor, Hugh Hefner, Flint was viewed as a profiteer, objectifying women, and a pioneer defender of free speech who pushed social boundaries. He was also famous for his lavish taste and obsessive art collecting. His home and offices were adorned with thousands of paintings, ornate lamps, statues, and obscurities like a gilded commode. After his passing a couple of years ago, much of his collection is now being sold off by the storied auction house Abel, which has handled the estates of many old Hollywood royalty. There was an auction in December. There's another one coming up this week on Thursday. And Joel Stein is an author and columnist who recently toured the Flint collection, wrote about it for L.A. Magazine, and he's here with us right now. Hi, Joel. Oh, thank you for having you on. When you think porn kingpin's personal art collection, Joel, a number of things, I guess, come to mind. What exactly is being auctioned off? I horribly misunderstood what was being auctioned off before I got to see it. Larry Flint was a particularly, uh, he was a peddler of particularly scuzzy pornography. And so I just pictured, you know, his heyday was like the 70s, 80s. So I pictured stupidly, like Patrick Nagel, cocaine inspired, you know, black and silver sleaziness. But instead, uh, his collection is dictator chic, which is the kind of thing that like Trump is into or you see it like, you know, in Vegas. It's that fake um, Versailles ornate uh, furniture and paintings. The only naked people in the paintings I saw were angel babies. So it was that kind of look. Yeah. Yeah. Dictator chic. I mean, <laughs> gold, gold toilet. Right. I mean, that that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, it's all like a, a hearkening back to the Gilded Age. I mean, Larry Flint grew up crazy poor in Kentucky. So I think this was definitely his idea of what wealth looked like. And he was a bit of a hoarder. Like at some point, he actually owned an antique shop on Melrose. And his house and his office were just crammed with stuff. There, there appears to be a lot of 20th century portraits and landscape paintings, right? Glass lamps statuettes 
Some of them kind of gaudy. Some, I mean, you know, or, or, I mean, it's a matter of taste, right? Well, no, it's bad. How bad? Well, I mean, in the proper setting, I guess if you were like checking in as a VIP in the Bellagio, uh, maybe that would be the look you want at the moment. But I don't know if, you know, you walk into someone's office, this is what you necessarily want to see or their house. I, and it's also this stuff auctioned for way above what it was worth because people just wanted to own something that was owned by Larry Flint, which had happened with Abel. They've done celebrity auctions forever. And like the Carol Channing auction was recent and they got maybe 20% above value, but they got even more for Larry Flint, which shocked me. I thought it'd be a negative value. Like it, it wasn't long ago that he was such a sleazebag that, you know, if, if you walked into someone's house and they told you that a you know, a couch used to be owned by Larry Flint, you'd go running to the dry cleaner. You wouldn't want to buy it. You know, Joel, your, your article, is, it's in part a, a, a profile, right, of, of, of the insular world of mega collectors. You know, you called them a hoarder. What did you notice as sort of a fly on the wall to this, this subculture? You know, I met a guy who was walking around who I really liked, this older guy, and he was dressed, uh, you know, incredibly poorly. He was just wearing like a windbreaker and uh, maybe shorts. He had the, maybe the greatest collection of toy trains in the world. I think he spent $250,000 on one of the Lionel trains. And he had met Larry Flint, not through any business or, you know, reason, but they, he knew he was a collector and his friend brought him over there and they talked about lamps because this guy also collects lamps. But everyone in the collecting world seemed to have met Larry Flint and liked him. Uh, he kind of would overpay for stuff. You know, collectors, you, whether it, collectors of anything, whether they're baseball cards or wine, they're, they're, they get obsessed. They're, they're all kind of the same on some level. Flint was, was left unable to walk from the assassination attempt on his life in the late seventies. Um, he had published apparently an interracial layout in Hustler. Got somebody mad about that. Despite being a pornographer, I mean, I mentioned objectifying women, you know, does he deserve any credit for, I don't know, for pushing social boundaries? Does that have value today? Apparently so. And obviously pornography is a much, is not nearly as verboten as it was when he started. But I also, you know, I think about what Gloria Steinem said when the, the movie, The People versus Larry Flint, starring Woody Harrelson came out which was, yeah, some of his cases were good for the First Amendment, but a lot of neo-Nazi cases were great for the First Amendment too, and no one's making a movie about how great those people are. When he was accused of treating women like meat, he had a cover of Hustler. It's just a visual of a woman going legs last into a meat grinder. So, so some of the stuff was overtly misogynistic. How's he viewed, do you think, in 2023... I think this auction tells you everything. All of the disgust is gone. And he's just, if, if people even remember him, uh, they probably remember the movie and Woody Harrelson, or they think of Hustler as cool. I mean, there's all these Hustler stores across the nation now. And there's a Hustler casino, which is like a major poker place in LA. So I think the whole brand has lost its kind of negativity to it. Joel, how do you how do you own some of this bric-a-brac? I mean, there's another auction, right, this week on Thursday. Yeah, he had so much stuff. I mean, we went down there. It was rooms full of stuff, so they broke it up into two auctions, and the second one's coming up. And Abel does all their stuff online now. 
So you can't even go in person. You just go online and bid. Joel Stein, author and columnist whose most recent piece, The Buried Treasures of Hustler founder Larry Flint, was published in L.A. Magazine. Joel, thanks, man. Thank you uh, on my behalf and my son's behalf. That's going to do it for us today. Tomorrow, the latest on the search and cleanup in Turkey and Syria. After several devastating earthquakes struck in that region, how family and friends of those who were there are coping, even raising money from here in L.A., and how L.A. firefighters are among those helping. That's tomorrow on Greater L.A. Share your thoughts with us. Maybe even share a story, too. And grab the podcast anytime at kcrw.com slash greaterla. Or, of course, you can get the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Just search for KCRW Greater L.A. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Zeke Reed, Sonia Guy, Sue Margulies, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Christine Camito, Mike Vogel, and Christian Bordal all put time and ears into today's episode. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Thanks for your time. Have a great day.